pretty exciting to be here, isn't it? Okay, I'm excited. I share that with you. It's, uh, it's also great to be uh, starting off a new sermon series today uh, on the church. And uh, it's, um, it's going to be a great series as we consider what it is that we're doing here and why we'd like it to grow and what God's purpose is for the church. And so I'm going to pray that God would help us now and, uh, and then we'll dive in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to consider your word. Father, would you help us to grasp hold of what the church is and why you've created it? Give us a passion, a passion that you yourself share to see your church grow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to, uh, to making coffee, is anyone a coffee drinker here? Put up your hands. Okay, so if I, if I say to you, uh, please make a, uh, make a cup of coffee, is that an easy or a difficult thing for you to do? Sorry? Difficult. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a tea drinker. I take my tea weak and black, right? Comes in a little bag, hot water. Dum, 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 dum. Oh, no, that's enough. And we're all done, right? That's what it feels like for me to make a cup of tea. Now, I, I asked this question because I wasn't sure whether the coffee drinkers were going to say, oh, no, it's quite difficult to make a cup of coffee. Because there's, you know, tamping and then there's milk to add and temperatures of things and, I don't know, machines and stuff that you guys use. But if you're going to make a cup of coffee, what do you have in mind when you start? The perfect cup of coffee. You know how you want it to look. I imagine something like that. Yeah? Um, if you could do it, that's the perfect thing that you have in mind, and you're taking the steps to try and produce a beautiful cup of coffee. So you, you have it in your mind before you start. Does anyone know who this bloke here is? Yeah, that's it. that is appropriate. That is appropriate. Does anyone know who he is? Can anyone call out? Johnny Wilkinson. Okay. Now, this, this bloke, what do you think he's doing just at the moment? So praying? That's good. No, he's preparing to break Australian hearts. I think that's what he's, uh, what he's doing. Um, so uh, apart from praying or breaking our hearts, what, what's he doing at this funny contorted moment like this? What, what, what's he doing? Balancing himself, sorry? Looking stupid, yeah. What he's doing, what he's doing, tell you what, if we could have any Australian who could look as stupid in that and, and kick like him, we'd be very happy, I think. Uh, what he's doing and what lots of professional athletes do is he's visualising what his kick will look like. He's imagining what it looks like when his ball goes through the uprights right over the black dot and he breaks our hearts in the process. He's there visualising what it will look like. So before he kicks, he has the end in mind, the, the perfect end in mind. I went to, uh, to Tasmania uh, some time ago uh, and uh, one of the places that I wanted to get back to, I've been there before, was a place called Cradle Mountain. And uh, we stayed right near Cradle Mountain, which was brilliant. Uh, now, in my spare time, uh, whenever I'm near any body of water, I'm a landscape photographer. You may not know that about me. Uh, I love taking photographs. Cradle Mountain's one of my beautiful places in life. And so what I, what I did before we took the trip I knew I wanted to take a picture of Cradle Mountain at dawn. So it just so happened that we were there pretty much in winter, I think, uh, and uh, I had to get up early and, uh, and I had to drive in. I knew I'm going to have to get all my gear and then walk into a spot. And the day before, I'd been scoping out the spot I wanted. So I got up at about 5 o'clock in the morning and it was, I reckon it was below freezing. It was stupidly cold. 
And uh, I was driving past all these little wallabies on the road that were trying to throw themselves under my wheels, honestly. It was just crazy. They're just everywhere, running out from the bush. So I'm kind of dodging little speed humps, hoping they're not speed humps. Um, and, uh, and I get there, unpack my gear, put it over my shoulders. I'm walking through the bush in the absolute darkness, going, I know what I want to see when the light comes. And I set up my gear, and I stood very still in the freezing cold and waited and waited and waited and waited until I had the opportunity to take uh, this shot here. Um, Now, I had taken this shot in my head before I left to go to Tasmania. This is what I wanted. I wanted still water, and God was incredibly gracious and gave me still water. I wanted the light to break through and hit Cradle Mountain. It happened. Now, the only thing I would have probably dialed up a little bit more was just a little bit more light on the clouds, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I was wrapped. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not a happy snap, right? You start with the end in mind, what you envisage to be the outcome, and you work towards it a step at a time, right? So that's how you make a cup of coffee, how you kick a goal, how you take a landscape photograph. How about being told, we'll go build a church? How would we do that? What would you need to know to go build a church? Well, I think what you need to know is you need to have the end in mind. Just like the perfect cup of coffee, the ball going over the, uh, the, the black dot, the, the photograph, we have to actually start with the end in mind. We have to know what it is that God's purpose and shape is for the church. So in order to do that, we're going to explore what uh, Matt just pointed out was from our creed this morning. It came from uh, the Nicene Creed, which was put together in... Uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381 BC. That's some time ago. And what it said... Sorry? Oh, you guys are on to it this morning. Fantastic. It was not before Christ, surprisingly enough. (laughs) After Christ, he had a plan for a church and it was in three... (laughs) It's good to see you're on the ball here. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, So here's what the creed says. It says we believe in one church says we believe in a holy church. It says that we believe in a universal church and that we believe in an apostolic church. And at that point, you're sitting there going, yeah, but what does it mean? What's it actually all about? How, how, does, how do you build a, a one, a holy, a universal and an apostolic church? Well, let's dive in. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a look one of these points at a time through the four points. And in order to get the perspective, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Revelation. Revelation was written from jail by a guy called John, one of the apostles. And Revelation is a picture of what's to come. It's exactly what we were talking about. It's a vision of the end that's been known now. Does that make sense? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the end picture of the church that's in Revelation and see how it will fill out uh, this idea of what one church is. Well, as we think about one church, the first question that pops into our mind is, aren't there literally millions of churches? How can you say we believe in one church? I mean, maybe, maybe you do believe in one church and you're at New Life this morning, in which case, congratulations. We're the one church, obviously. Is that right? Somebody shake their head, please. Nod that you're listening. No. We are not the one church, but there literally are millions of churches, aren't there? So what can it possibly mean when we say we believe in one church? 
Well, let's have a look and we'll go to the end. Uh, If we have a look here, we're in Revelation, if you grab your Bibles and open them up. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, it's on page 1241. Revelation chapter 7 and uh, we're going to have a look at verse 9. After this I looked, that's John speaking, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. What's the point here? The picture of heaven is the throne of God and standing before the throne is this multitude Notice it isn't great multitudes. It's a great multitude. It's not divided into denominational corners. I looked out and there before me was a big square room. And on the left were the Anglicans. And in the back corner on the right were the Baptists. And then the... It's not like that, is it? What he saw was a cohesive group a massive crowd that were one. Where are they from? From every nation, tribe, people and language. There'll be people in heaven, in this church that we're envisaging, from every people group, language, tribe and nation. And you guys should know, if you don't know already, that that vision of the end drives a whole lot of mission societies. Why do you think it would drive them? Because they won't rest while there's still a people group out there or a language group or a nation that doesn't know Jesus. Why? Because they've been told at the end, everyone will be represented there. Can you see that? So while there's a people group that doesn't know about Jesus, what's their passion and their energy? What should be our passion and energy? that that group might know that someone from that group can be standing in that great multitude on the final day. Make sense? So what's the picture of the church? It's one multitude made up of people from all over the world. The second passage we're looking at is the Ephesians passage. And in chapter 4, it says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the word that turns up the most there? And, is, no. It's one. It's one. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How many churches can there be if there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit? It's not a trick question. There'll only be one, won't there? And you'll notice what we're encouraged to do. We're not encouraged to create the unity of the Spirit. Have a look at the top line there. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. How does that work? The point is, because we have one Spirit in us, we are united. Can you see that? We're actually united by the Spirit. So rather than saying you have to create unity in the church, we are already united with everyone who has the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pull this together a little bit for you. I want to contrast what I'm calling the damaged church and the true church. 
And uh, I don't want to call it the not church, okay? Because otherwise the application from the sermon could be you run around and start pointing fingers at everyone and going, you're not the church, you're not the church, you're not the church. I suspect there are in this world, I know there are, heaps of broken representatives of the church. And I don't want to say that they're not church, but I'd love every church that's damaged to look more like the ideal one in heaven. Does that make sense? So what I want to say, the damaged church, the one that's missing its proper shape, is unwilling to fellowship across racial lines. Can I explain this to you? If the picture of the end is people from every tribe, language, nation, and etc., hanging out together before the throne, then if on earth we decide the, these people here, what are you, you're the left-hand side people, is that right? When you look at me, I'm, I'm looking at you, you're the right-hand people. But the, these people here, right, decide that those people, I mean, who would hang out with them, right? And so you build a little line across the middle and you decide we won't fellowship with them because clearly they've made the wrong decision. They've sat on the right-hand side and for the rest of eternity they will sit on the right-hand side here, probably in the row and seat that they're in right now because that's what happens as human beings. So you decide we're not going to hang out with them. If as people we decide we'll let racial barriers, language barriers divide us and we'll refuse to have fellowship with other people who name Jesus as Lord, we've stuffed it up. The unity we see at the end is across all of those boundaries. And so, the true one church finds its unity in one source, Jesus Christ. And that unity will trump everything else. And this is why I believe Jesus is the only hope for peace in our world. If you look at Africa and its brokenness, if you look at the Balkans, if you look anywhere, you'll find brokenness that's divided along family and tribe and nation, the only thing that will trump all of that is finding our unity in one source, who is Jesus. Well, that's one. What about holy? We believe in one holy church. Well, doesn't being holy just simply mean I'm better than you? Isn't that the way it's used? You know, they're a little bit more holier than thou. Have you heard that? And basically that just means someone's just a bit full of themselves and they're like pulling other people up for using the wrong language or something. Yeah? That's not at all what God has in mind when, uh, when he has his church. Uh, we're back to John. So we're in John, uh, sorry, in Revelation. And we'll have a look at verse 14 here. One of the elders asks him, it says in verse 13, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Verse 14, I answered, sir, you know, that's a very good answer, can I just say. I love it. You get a trick question from some of the elders around the throne of God and you're not sure the answer of, you just go, oh, you know. Use it, it'll be good. And he said, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I love it. Who are, that? Who are the people, this great multitude, who are they? And he says, well, these are those who've come out of the Great Tribulation. First thing to note, is following Jesus always going to be easy? All right, I'm going to break it to you now if you thought otherwise. The answer is no. Not only did Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, but Revelation tells us before the end, there will be a Great Tribulation. We might be living in it today. 
Following Jesus won't be easy, but those who are standing there at the end are those who've stood firm, who've gone through the great tribulation. They've had their, their robes washed and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I, I had this discussion with our life group on, uh, on Wednesday night. What happens when you get blood on clothing? Sorry? It stains. It leaves a... It's not even a nice red mark, is it? It's kind of a brown mark. If you get blood on stuff, generally, it stains and leaves an ugly mark. What's the outcome of getting washed in this blood? Made white. Stains removed. We're not, of course, talking about physical blood. Jesus' blood isn't in a bath somewhere and they dip their... That's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross can wash us clean of our sins. That the stains on your heart that you can't get out with hard work, with beating yourself up, those stains in our hearts will come out with nothing else but the blood of Jesus and washed by him, you can be white. That's what it means, that we can be holy, clean, pure before God. See, the, the damaged church claims holiness comes from a person or a practice, that they'll say, you need to talk to this person, or you need to do this. I remember there was a, a mob called the, um, what are they called, the, uh, the Sydney Church of Christ, I think. When I was going through university, they told me that I had to be baptised. I said, I've already been baptised. And they said, no, 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 no. You have to be baptised by us in our church or you won't be forgiven by God. So we're clear, that's damaged. <laughs> that, that's not right. The true church, the, the church that's holy, the holy church finds its holiness from the Lamb alone. From the Lamb alone. Where will we go to be right it doesn't come from feeling better than someone else or pulling someone else because they use some bad language. That's not where our holiness comes from. Our holiness comes from Jesus' shed blood. We're washed clean by him. The lamb alone is the source of the holiness of the church. We talk about a universal church. A universal, one holy universal church. Well, is the idea here that there are branches everywhere? I like that idea. We like branches at New Life Anglican Church. Very good. That's, that's the tree you see over there. That's a little allusion to that. Hello, Zach. So is the idea of the universal church that there's just lots of branches everywhere? Well, that's not the case. Although it is pretty funny when you have a look at this verse here. Have a look with me at Revelation 7 and verses 9 to 10. Hey, Zach, careful on those stairs, bud. Have a look. Um... You go, mate. Uh, it says that they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice. See, they were holding palm branches in their hands. See, branches everywhere. Palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Ephesians, uh, oh, actually, I'll go back. Um, the cool thing about this is uh, what unites these people, what makes them one church, is their confession that salvation belongs to God. 
Lots of people will say salvation comes from all different places. These guys say together, salvation belongs to our God. Oh, well, jumping ahead, come back. Um, That way? Yes. Uh, And then in Ephesians 3, it says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. So here's the thing. The world was divided into two in the mind of the Jewish people. Good guys, bad guys. People who God loves, people who God doesn't love. The amazing news of the gospel is that there is one people, one people, one body, and that that is made possible, a universal church, by the work of Jesus. Members together of one, of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The damaged church is unsure about salvation in Jesus. Uh, I've, I've left a church, who I won't name from the front, for that reason. I grew up in it. A group of people who decided that there are lots of other ways that you could be okay with God. They were unsure about salvation in Jesus being central. The true church, the universal church, finds its unity in Jesus and his promises, his promises that the two would become one. We have a universal church because in God's promise, he said the Jew and the Gentile can be recipients of forgiveness of sins. What about this word, one, holy, universal, apostolic? Apostolic? What exactly is an apostle anyway? Well, technically the word means sent one. Sent one. But it has a little bit of a better definition. If we have a look more closely in the New Testament, we have a look at uh, someone like Peter, And I'm going to read from uh, 2 Peter. You might want to turn it up with me, actually, because there's a little bit here. 2 Peter, chapter 1. So if you're in Revelation, head towards the front of the Bible, but don't go too quickly, and you'll see 2 Peter come. 2 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 12. Peter, the apostle, Peter, is writing to a church, and he says this. As, As a preacher, I find this very encouraging. He says this. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. What's Peter's passion? Peter's passion is that people remember Jesus. And he wants to make sure they can remember Jesus after he's died. So what does he do? For we did not follow cleverly uh, cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven and we were with him on the sacred mountain. Here's the thing. Peter says, I was there. You should believe what I tell you about Jesus because I... I saw it. I want you to be able to remember about Jesus after I die. So what's he done? What's he done to make sure they can remember after he dies his eyewitness account? He's told people and now he's written it down. When we say that we're an apostolic church, 
We're saying we're people who are built on the eyewitnesses of the apostles. Okay? We believe the truth about God, not just because it was spoken from heaven to a certain bloke. Instead, we believe it because people who saw it, who lived with him for years, wrote down carefully what happened. And that's why we believe. That's why we're apostolic. And, and again, in, in Revelation, we see how um, awesome this idea of apostles is. Uh, right at the end, we have the new creation and the holy city coming down out of heaven. And it says this, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from God. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Isn't that cool? Now, I don't think one of them was scratched out. <laughs> Might have been at some point. Judas is what I'm thinking about, but it's replaced by Matthias, I imagine. Anyway, there are 12 foundation stones for the city and their apostles. The foundations for the city in heaven are the apostles. So here's the thing. The damaged church looks at the Bible, the record of the apostles, without respect. We don't need the Bible. We don't need it. We can tell you stuff about God, or maybe we don't tell you anything about God and we just affirm our own power and personality cult. The damaged church looks at the Bible without respect. The true one church finds its unity in the apostles' writing. So that's why it's an apostolic church. It's based on the writings of the apostles. So here it is, our beautiful church. And uh, it's based on Jesus, one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Well, can we, can we be clear what church is actually for? What, what's church for? Good question. Have a look with me back at Ephesians. So, Ephesians, if you're a Bible flipper, it's on page uh, 1175. So, Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, in the beautiful passage that was read to us, Ephesians chapter 3. It's talking about the church, and it says this, his intent, nice, uh, verse, uh, verse 10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's God doing? Well, there are powers and authorities around us that aren't on God's side. And what he wants to do through the church, I don't think it's quite this, right? But what he wants to do is he, through the gathering of a group of people who were previously in slavery to Satan but have now been set free who gather to honour Jesus, he wants to shame them. What's the glory of the church? What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to show that God wins. People come from darkness to light. Forgiveness of sins is made real. Praise of Jesus happens in hard hearts. So that's the first purpose. Second purpose is in verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said? Because they're well trained. What's the, what's the second purpose? The second purpose is that God might be given glory in the church. Here, here's something I've found. Have you, have you watched um, Christmas carols, uh, like in the domain? I know you can't now. Well, you need to thank us for that. Isn't that a wonderful service that we're giving you? So when you, when you see carols in the domain, right? They sing Christmas carols sometimes, don't they? Some of them even have Jesus in them, don't they? They can sing the words. Does praise go to Jesus? I think praise goes to me as I'm singing. Doesn't it? Isn't that what's going on? Not in this case, thank you. Well, isn't that helpful? I'm causing you not to stumble. That's, that's very good. I, I just can't, it just, you can even say the words, right? And glory won't go to Jesus. The only place that praise will come from the earth is from people who are saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the only place it'll come. And so you and I, as we gather here this morning, are part of God's purpose in the world, that praise and honour go to him. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Because he made us. Because he owns us. Because it's our due. The damaged church finds diversion from the honour of God everywhere. We'll do everything except honour and praise God. We might even have the most awesome choir in the world, but it'll be about the choir and not about God. We'll have the tallest sandstone in the world and it'll be about our glory and building a beautiful church. It's possible that the church gets distracted in so many ways. The one true holy church finds unity in honouring God and glorifying him. And I hope, as you do this morning, that you find joy in it, don't you? Praising God for who he is. Love it. We at New Life, here's where I want to bring it into land. We at New Life will work with all who believe in one holy, universal, apostolic church. We'll work with anyone who believes with that. Why? Because with them, we're already united in Jesus. Can you see this? If our unity is found in those things, we will be able to work with them because we're already united. We are part of that one true church already. So I pray for us that we would be able to work well with others, that we would be able to discern those who are damaged and need to be encouraged to keep focusing on the right things, and that we will be a church who works for God's glory in this world, a church that you can now refer to as not just New Life Anglican Church. Where do you go to? I go to one holy, universal and apostolic church. Do you reckon you can say that? Don't worry about it. Keep turning up here and being part of that body. And can I say, keep in mind that end. I don't know if you believe it or not, but one day you and I, the you that's sitting there listening to me here, one day you and I will stand before the throne. Those of us who are trusting in Jesus. And together we will gaze 
on the majesty of God and praise his name. We'll do it with brothers and sisters from China, from Africa, from India, from Oran Park. And we'll do it because we've found unity in the work and majesty and power of Jesus. So today, right now, let's express that unity by honouring and praising him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the unity you've already created in the church, a unity around Jesus and for your glory and honour. Help us to be people who hold on to the concept of this one holy universal and apostolic church father give us a vision of the end so the church we build here in Oran park may be part of that great multitude at the end and we ask it for jesus sake amen